Uh, Today we're going to begin a new series from the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, Verses 1 through 11 is our focus today. Uh, We'll get into more detail uh, in that as we go through this passage of Scripture. So today's message is entitled, The Futility of Life. The Futility of Life from the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, how many people knew right away when I said Ecclesiastes, where to go in the Bible? Amen. 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 So, so, uh, how many people knew right away it was in the Old Testament, right? All right. That's good. That's good. That's a good start. Amen. So you look at the book of, and if you have to find it in your index, go right ahead in your table of contents, get that book of Ecclesiastes. Um, and I want to, I want to ask this question today. Have you ever really asked the question, what is life all about? Or have you ever wondered, What is the meaning of life? And even more, have you ever wondered why it seems like the church you attend or have attended in the past or your Bible study teacher or Sunday school teacher never seem to have a strong answer for those questions? And no, I know personally that I've wondered these issues silently and in some cases out loud sometimes in my prayers I've asked God what does all of this mean what is all this all about and especially in the midst of difficult circumstances I've wondered why things happen the way they do so today as I said we're beginning this new series from the book of Ecclesiastes this book is one of the most intriguing books of the Bible. It's found in the Old Testament right after Proverbs and right before the Song of Solomon. So it's really in the middle of wisdom and love, okay? So appropriate, appropriately given uh, the questions, it's appropriate that given the questions Ecclesiastes raises about the meaning of life, that this book is really centered between the wisdom of Proverbs and, and the love that is displayed in the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes is what is known as wisdom literature. When I was in school, there was an entire class de- 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 designated to study wisdom literature in the Bible. And this book, this book is found there and, and, and the literary designation of wisdom literature includes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These books are some of the most beautifully written in all of Scripture. They deal with life as it actually is in all of its grim realities. In the book of Job, we learn about the sovereignty of God as Job loses everything with the exception of his faith. Psalms takes us musically on this journey of worship and worship songs and uh, as we as we journey through life's ups 
and downs. We remember the Psalms and beautiful Psalms like Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And so Proverbs urges us away from folly and foolishness and moves us toward a practical life of wisdom. Then we get to Ecclesiastes. This book is somewhat mysterious in a sense, uh, looking at it from our perspective. It is embraced by philosophers and artists because of its gritty approach to the brevity of life and the certainty of death. I remember my grandmother telling me one day, she said, there are only two things you have to do. I said, what is that, Grandma? She said, stay black and die. <laughs> so, so, so she, she understood very clearly that you had to, you, you had death as a, as it, it, and forward of every person that's born into the world. Even Job says, man that is born of a woman is of a few days, and those days are full of trouble. So even as we look and hope for this long life, the truth of the matter is that death looms ahead of all of us. Now, to give you an idea, here is a compiled list of the most used words in Ecclesiastes. The word vanity is used 38 times. The word wisdom is used 53 times. The word God is used 40 times. The word toil is used 33 times. The word death, 21 times. The phrase under the sun, 33 times. And the word joy, 17 times. Do you notice that toil is used almost twice as much as joy. Now, you would be surprised if I were to tell you that the real focus of Ecclesiastes is about joy. But you only see it 17 times in the book. So you don't want to miss that particular dynamic. Now, on the surface, the tone and questions of Ecclesiastes, they seem rather gloomy. As a matter of fact, one commentator says this. He says, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen if you were to write a book of the Bible on Monday morning? <laughs> Especially when your alarm clock just goes off and it's time to go to work. But, but isn't, isn't those Monday mornings the exact time when we need realistic faith the most? Don't we need it on Monday morning? Sunday faith is great, but Monday faith is the real test. The days when life feels like pure drudgery, when the grind of work, home, sleep, and, and, and all of these things numb us, from the big question, what is the point of all of this? Here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. It addresses this in the most indirect and satirical way. It isn't until 
the end of this book in chapter 12 that the author unveils fully the answers to life's questions. So in other words, he takes you through 11 chapters by teasing us, pointing out life's absurdities, only hinting that there might be a solution to all of this. Now, before you think here, uh, and you say a series about the absurdity of life, how in the world can you preaching, pastor, on the absurdity of life be helpful to me? Well, besides the fact that this is the scripture, amen, and all revelation, all word of God, Proverbs says where there is no revelation, where there is no revealed will of God, the people perish. So all revelation is helpful. Ecclesiastes is actually, and I told you this before, a guide to joy and true enjoyment of life. So as you go through this and walk through this book with us, remember that we're really talking about how to live a joyful life. Well-known and beloved theologian J.I. Packer said this in an article written in Christianity Today, that Ecclesiastes is his favorite book in the whole Bible. Now, this is the man that wrote the bestseller, Knowing God. But his favorite book in the whole Bible is Ecclesiastes. Not Romans, not John, but Ecclesiastes. He says the reason for this is that he is by nature introverted and prone to a cynical spirit. Now, for all the cynics in the house, <laughs> Ecclesiastes answers the cynical spirit. God uses Ecclesiastes powerfully in his life and, and to help J.I. Packer realize that God desires us to live our absurd lives with gladness. Now, there's, a, there's kind of a paradox there, isn't it? If my life is absurd, how do I live it with gladness? And so there's a, there's a, there's, there's, God is good for those paradoxes. I don't know that, that this series will make Ecclesiastes your favorite book of the Bible, but you may find out that this will be one of your favorite series if you walk through this with us. Now, as we go, we will keep one eye through this book of the Bible looking for Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures are all about him, even though he is more background than he is in the foreground. But let's, let's see how Ecclesiastes is all about Christ. As we begin this wonderful journey, it's important to note that we begin with learning something about the author of this book. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David king in Jerusalem. Now, this would seem quite straightforward, especially when later in the book, the author says he advanced in society, education, and wealth beyond any who had ever lived in Jerusalem. Who could this be but Solomon? Particularly because Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And this letter is written from the perspective of wisdom. 
Yet, my brothers and sisters, we don't actually know who wrote Ecclesiastes. Most modern scholars don't think it was Solomon. And why is that? There was an ancient practice in those days known as fictional biography. Someone could legitimately assume the identity of a historical person and write something as if the historical person was writing it. It'd be like if I went back and said, I'm going to assume the biography or the uh, historical uh, identity of Martin Luther King. I would write a book and put Martin, Martin Luther King's name on it or allude to the fact that it was written by Martin Luther King. And so you, one might think Martin Luther King actually wrote this book, but no, it's a, it's a historical, it's that practice of fictional biography. Since this was often practiced, and some of the language here kind of dates to a later period than Solomon, best for us to say that we don't know for sure who wrote Ecclesiastes. Could be Solomon, could be a pseudo-Solomon. It doesn't matter because this is in the canon of Scripture and is therefore inspired and reliable. But this author calls himself the preacher. Now, other translations might read teacher. The word means the gatherer or assembler. Now, if you think about this, go back to the word Ecclesiastes. And you will find kind of as the root, the Greek word ekklesia, which means the gathering or the gathered or the called out assembly. In the case of ekklesia, It would be the church. So as we look at this, this particular preacher, the preacher, he is not a philosopher in the ivory tower. He is a preacher of truth for the masses. As we go through this, you will see the author is a little bit like Yoda from Star Wars. He often answers questions by asking questions his goal is to draw us deeper into the enigmas and the nuances of life most of us have not thought deeply about what life means you know what we do we just live it and some of us live life from a crisis mode so we don't think about really the deep issues of life we just are trying to survive every day And so we live life. This book has 12 chapters. We'll take take on the book with uh, what's called a sectional exposition. Sometimes we'll deal with long sections of the book. Sometimes we'll be short. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And our focus today will be on the dilemma of humanity. Now look at somebody and say, we're in a dilemma. We're in a dilemma. We're the dilemma of humanity. The human dilemma. Here it is right here. The human dilemma is our entire life is vanity. Now I'm going to let that marinate for a minute. Because some of you would not think that your entire life is vanity. After all, you're good looking. You might have a couple dollars in your pocket. You have a nice home. You drive a nice car. 
You're married to the most wonderful person you could ever marry. Ought to be a couple of amens in here for that one. That's right. (laughs) And so you can't, you don't think of your entire life as being vanity. But look at what verse 2 says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. And, And there's an exclamation point there. An emphasis that all is vanity. Now, the Hebrew word there is abel, which is H-E-B-E-L, and it's translated vanity, and it literally means vapor or breath. On the surface, it alludes to the fact that life can be very fleeting, sort of like blowing into the air on a cold day. If you go outside and, and you can see your breath, you only see it for a moment, and then it's gone. And so, it's, so think of life in that sense, like a vapor or breath. For many of us, we've noticed how, how quickly life seems to dissipate like steam from a teapot. I've noticed that. I remember the days of my youth. <laughs> I might not know what I had for breakfast yesterday. <laughs> But I remember sitting in front of the television, the little black and white that we had, and watching the Bugs Bunny Road run an hour. <laughs> I remember things. Sometimes they'll just, and, and, and help me here. I hope I'm not the only one. Sometimes things are just flashing your mind. Oh, that's just like that Tom and Jerry cartoon. <laughs> and, so, and so life can dissipate so quickly. But this word for vanity, Abel, means something else as well. Vapor does not do it full justice. It also alludes to that which is deceitful or ineffectual, especially in reference to idols and false gods. What the author is really trying to reveal to his audience is the meaninglessness, the vapid, deceitful, absurd, and even transitory nature of life. He wants his readers to understand the case he is building around this word Abel in order to make a greater point, which we shall see as we progress through this book. He wants us to get this idea that life is vanity. Life is vapor. Life is absurd. Life doesn't make sense. Life can be uh, deceitful. It 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 can lead you to idolatry. He wants us to understand all of these things. So we should read Ecclesiastes with one eye looking back to Genesis 3, which is a chapter about the fall of man, and one eye on John chapter 3. Genesis 3 describes the sin of Adam and Eve known as the fall from his moral perfection, his fall from shalom with his creator or peace with God. When did everything turn to futility? When God was no longer on the throne of Adam's heart. So one eye on the fall and the other on the cross where Jesus alluded in John 3 that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom 
of God. So we have, we have this dynamic where on the one hand, we have the fall of man. On the other hand, we have this, this wonderful word from Christ that says we can be born again and get into God's kingdom. But what about the in-between? That's where you find Ecclesiastes. It's in the in-between. So one eye on the fall and the other on the cross where Jesus' death reverses the fall and by faith in him, everything once again matters. Ecclesiastes describes man's tortured existence between the fall and the incarnation, between Adam and Jesus, between the loss of life and the gift of life. What is it like to be made for God but yet not have God? Pastor Rick Warren said this in his book, The Purpose Driven Church. He talked about how the people of God, you are made for God's pleasure. You are made for him. You are made to worship God. Now, let me just throw this in for free. Every time you set an idol in your life, that uh, an idol God or something that you place above God, you will never be satisfied. Because you are made for one purpose only, and that is to worship God. So how how does it feel? What is it like to be made for God and not have God? How do you scratch a life of purpose when you are spiritually dead? It feels like futility. It feels like vanity. It feels like one day you're here, and suddenly you're old, you're here, you're gone, and guess what? Who cares? Who cares? The author's first proof for this is taking a look at a family tree, if you will. But he doesn't just look at the family tree. He also looks at the family burial plot or the family crypt. Because he says this, a generation goes, a generation comes. And he says that backwards. We normally say a generation comes and a generation goes. But he starts with the departing generation And the one replacing it, the unending, unstoppable passing of time as seen in the constant going of the older generation and the constant coming of the new generation. Let me tell you something about the new generation. For everybody in here that still considers themselves a member of the new generation. The new generation thinks they will always be young, always be cool, always be hip. Always have swag. <laughs> but quicker than you can blink, they become the parting generation. There is always a new one displacing the old one. When did I lose my coolness? I don't remember somebody saying one day, You have lost your coolness. Today's the last day to be cool, man. You need to make the most of it. (laughs) It just happened. I had kids. They began to become teenagers. And all of a sudden, I was no longer cool. I don't understand that. When did my swag disappear? (laughs) I I don't don't get it. I... (laughs) 
I tried to hold on to it as long as I could, Brother Keith, but, uh, but, <laughs> but somewhere along the line, I seem to have lost it. And when I try to use the words that they use, I mess them up. They don't make sense coming out of my mouth. I found myself, you know, the other day, somebody told me, you know, if you're, if you're cool, if you say $1,000, they don't use that anymore. They say a stack. And I was, I was telling somebody, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to cost you a stack plus two bills. <laughs> now, that sounded cool to me. And that's when you get the side eye. What are you talking? <laughs> you have no idea what you're saying, do you? I really don't. <laughs> I was just trying to regain my cool. <laughs> But see, the young people here have no idea how true this is. But if you've been around the block a few times, you know that feeling. The creeping sense that your role and your importance, your health and vitality is slipping. And with it, our sense of importance and place in our world. Now, I had a moment like this. I had a moment like this when... We first bought this building. I remember the day we walked in, and we were walking through the building, and I walked in the gym back there, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It hit me. And, it's, and what, what hit me was I realized that as a 13-year-old aspiring basketball player, I had played ball in that very gym. Talk about a sobering moment. Here I was, 37 years plus some later. (laughs) Almost 40 years later. And I walk in and I remembered myself running up and down that court. I remembered what it was like to play in that gym. And I had one of those moments. You're not 13 anymore. You're not that little kid with the big Michael Jackson afro. (laughs) That's not you anymore. And I thought about that. I said, wow, that seemed like just a few years ago. Where did the time go? Before you know it, you're planning your 50th birthday party. And you realize as you approach that 50th year that it's very likely that you have more life behind you than you do in front of you. So now let's, let's look at how the preacher deals with this, this idea of the dilemma of humanity. Here, here's the first way in which he illustrates this dilemma. He illustrates our dilemma in creation. Creation illustrates the dilemma of the human experience. Look what he says, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 5. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. In other words, it rises here while it's going down somewhere else. And then it goes down here, it's rising somewhere else. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Verse 7 says, all streams run 
to the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. The sun rises and sets and it keeps on going. Every day we say goodbye to people in the human experience. But the sun rises and the sun sets. The wind illustrates this. The wind blows and blows and blows. And the other day it seemed like it just wouldn't stop blowing. Now I had a moment where I had to repent. I'm watching the news and a little old lady looked like she's getting ready to get blown away. Anybody see that? Oh my goodness. I, I said, Lord, forgive me for chuckling. <laughs> but I want to say if you only weigh like 97 pounds, you probably shouldn't be outside today. <laughs> And the look on her face was priceless. I mean, she was terrified. Every step she took, the wind was just tossing her around. I'm like, oh my goodness, be still. (laughs) Hold on to something. Now, there's some great preaching illustrations in that. We are tossed and driven. On the restless seas of time, somber skies and howling tempests all succeed the bright sunshine. But in the land of perfect day, when the mists have rolled away, we'll understand it better by and by. So there's some, there's some, there's some, some truth in looking at that illustration of how we're tossed through life. And it seemed like the wind just wouldn't keep blowing or wouldn't stop blowing. Look at what he says about the streams. He says they keep flowing into the sea, but the oceans are never full. They never get enough water. There's not a moment in time where, where the, the streams say, that's enough. Or the ocean says, don't give me any more water. They keep flowing. And they flow. And to the place where the streams flow, they flow again. What is it saying to us? Life for humans is like the monotony of the sun, wind, and river. Lots of activity, but in the end, it's back where it started. Your life has been full of activity, but you've never been able to escape the question of who are you and what are you going to do with God? You can't run from that, no matter how much you fill your life with activity. Now, this, is, this, this type of thing is theology for a Monday. <laughs> you got to go back to school, back to work, you know, back to homemaking, back to the same old thing. One more day of slippage towards irrelevance. Not too encouraging, is it? The mundaneness of life is apparent in this passage. It just keeps going over and over again. Even as somebody's sun rises, somebody else's sun set. Even as, as, as the wind keeps going, this whole ideal of life, somebody dies, somebody's born. It just keeps going. And so, I want to tell you, it sounds mundane, but it gets better. Amen. Here's another illustration that he gives us in verse 8 he gives us this illustration the weariness of life illustrates our dilemma 
Look at this. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been already in the ages before us. You know that feeling you get when you buy a new car? And it's brand new with maybe no miles on it or what, very few miles. And you say, look at my new car. As the moment you're doing that, somebody else <laughs> has bought the exact model <laughs> of that car and is showing it off to their family. So it's not new. It's not new because it was created in the mind of somebody else before it even got to you. Even if you say, I bought the most exclusive Maserati, Porsche combination or whatever, Ferrari, it started in somebody's mind. And so the only thing you can say really is that it's new to you. But it's not new. The preacher moves from the futility of man's endeavors to their utter weariness. The eye is always seeing, but it's never satisfied. The ear is always listening, yet always needing to hear something new. Now, I looked at that. I thought about that and said, maybe this is why we don't sing hymns in church anymore. Those are old songs. They for old folks. Our new generation doesn't need those hymns. But I came to tell you today that there's great truth in singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's great truth in singing rock of ages cleft for me. There's great truth in singing it is well with my soul. And maybe... There are some things we need to go back to to help us remember the foundation of our faith. I just threw that in for free. But we always need to hear something new, something different, something more, never satisfied. We're like the Rolling Stones. We can't get any satisfaction. Just can't get any satisfaction. No matter what we do, no satisfaction. You're single, got to get married. Get married, you're not satisfied. You're married, trying to get single. (laughs) You get single, and you miss being married. (laughs) See, because even as you, even as you look, oh, I'm married, I want to be single. You look out there now, it looks like a lot of fun until you get out there. And you realize people are much crazier than when you first started dating. The first time you were single, you know, people seemed like they were civilized. Now, they are crazy. So you start missing being married. So we, we can't get satisfaction. What drives us to seek a satisfaction in this life that seems so elusive and unachievable? Let me tell you something. It's the sinful nature of our flesh that drives us to continue to try to satisfy ourselves with the things of this world. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says this. 
He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. But here's what I want you to get. Look at what he says. He says, and put no confidence in the flesh. You can't trust your flesh for any, not for a moment. You cannot, look, I'm going to say it again. You can't trust your, look at somebody and tell them you can't trust your flesh. Let me tell you why you can't trust your flesh. How many people counted a new wrinkle in the last year? <laughs> huh? Now, I'm not going to ask you this question, but they have products now that are start helping you take the wrinkles out of your face. And some of us got all of them at home and everything. I got to put this stuff on. You're fighting a losing battle. <laughs> you have this perfect face and your neck will start getting wrinkled. I'm just... I mean, it just just doesn't make sense. Don't trust your flesh. It will change on you. (laughs) Look Look at, he says there's no confidence. Now look at verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Here's what the preacher is saying to us. No one will really remember our lives. Not really. Not the way we desire them to. If I was to leave this world, I want my wife to remember my life so much so that she'll tell her next husband I'm going to let you know from the beginning, you will not be able to live up to the standard (laughs) that was set by your predecessor. (laughs) Now, that's what I want. (laughs) I'm not likely to get that. (laughs) But I do want it, Keith. I'm just saying. (laughs) So we, 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 we want people to remember us and they just won't nothing is new nothing gains eternal fame from a human perspective so in all of this we find brothers and sisters the futility of life it is really absurd to chase that which remains elusive that is satisfaction through the things of this world no matter how much we seek Riches, fame, and glory. Death still looms ahead for us. Can you imagine the excitement of the people who won part of that billion-dollar lottery? Can you imagine if they took a moment and thought that with all this money I now have, I'm still going to (laughs) die? I saw a movie once with Will Ferrell called Talladega Nights. And, 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 and the character says to him, he says, Ricky, you're not going to live forever. And Ricky Bobby says this to him. He says, no, you know, nobody's going to live forever, but with my high income and the money that I have, it's not crazy to think that I might live to be 150 or 200. <laughs> 
And I thought about that. I mean, in a sense, that's how some people approach life, like it will never have a reasonable end. The Bible says the days of our years are three score and ten, and if by reason of strength, four score. That's 80 years. 80 years is a good life. Now you think about how close are you to 80 right now? What have you done with the previous years that God has given you? And if he gives you 80 years, what's going to happen in that time? Let me tell you something. If you're young right now, if he gives you 80 years, you will not look the same. I don't care what products you use. God bless Joan Rivers. She died. But her face was like. I'm like, please don't smile. The whole thing is going to come apart. <laughs> There's only so much plastic they can put in there. So, so here's what James says. In James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Verse 14 says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Then he asks this question, what is your life for you? brothers and sisters, are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are the steam coming out of the teapot, and as soon as that steam cools, it disappears. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. This says to us, that what really gives meaning to life is not the plans and efforts that originate in our flesh, but what really gives meaning to life is the plan of God that originated in the heart of God, and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving message of Jesus Christ and his atonement for our sin. Ecclesiastes 1 tells us of the state of our condition. It's like going to the doctor and getting a diagnosis of the human existence and, and receiving bad news. We want to know right away if we go to the doctor and get bad news, is there a cure? And here, as I said, where one eye has to look ahead to Jesus, has to look to the cross. Why did Jesus come? In 1 John 3 and 8, the word says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Our over-reliance on our flesh, on the things of this world. Hebrews 2 and 14 and 15 says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear and death were subject to lifelong slavery. He came so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin, so that we could be set free from the slavery of this world, so that we could be set free from that which ties us down and has us placing confidence in our own flesh. And finally, Romans 6.23 says, 
For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did Jesus come? So that he can make your life make sense. So that your life can be returned to its purpose. So that you right here today, if you have not made a decision for Jesus Christ, will know that you have been offered his free atonement by the power of his shed blood for the remission of our sins. It's that simple. It's that simple. You will not find satisfaction chasing after the things of this world. No matter how much money you accumulate in this life, no matter how much confidence you put in the fact that I'm only 21, I'm only 25, I'm only 27, you will not find satisfaction in your youth. Even in the wisdom of our older years, we will not find the satisfaction that we find in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So as we go through this book of Ecclesiastes, let us remember how important it is to know that life can be crazy and absurd and ridiculous and things can happen that we cannot by any stretch of human imagination hope to explain and make sense of. But at the same time, there is a Savior. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all their guilty stains.